welcome to the first ever episode of the Farm of the Future podcast, brought to you by RAISE in association with Innovation for Agriculture. This podcast will explore how farm businesses can prepare for and adapt to current and upcoming challenges affecting agriculture. Each episode will look into a different technology or approach available to farm businesses. We'll delve into everything from decarbonisation solutions to increasing farm biodiversity and always considering the impact on farm businesses, the people working on farm, as well as the benefits to food production and the environment. Today, I'm joined by Holly Sherman, head of the Farm of the Future programmes and livestock at Innovation for Agriculture. And together we'll be speaking to Kit Franklin from Harper Adams University, who is one of the pioneering team of agri-tech researchers behind the hands-free hectare. Back in 2017, this team were the first to grow a crop entirely using autonomous vehicles without any operators in driving seats or agronomists on the ground. Since then, the hands-free hectare has expanded to a hands-free farm and the team has completed further research and trials around the use of autonomous vehicles in farming systems. Holly, before Kit joins us in a minute, what's your impression of the use of autonomous vehicles in agriculture? Do you think it's a viable option for farmers? Hi, Tash. Yeah, I think that it is. Um, And I'm really excited to hear more from Kit about how he sees it going forwards in modern day farming and how he can help farmers to put this into practice on their farms with the work they've been doing on the hands-free hectare farm. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Let's crack on and let Kit in. Kit, thanks for joining us today. We'd love to hear more about the hands-free farm, but before we get stuck in, could you tell us a little bit about what led you down the path of researching autonomous vehicles and, and also like the potential benefits in farming? Yeah, great, no worries. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I uh, was studying agricultural engineering at Harper Adams. Uh, I did a master's degree, um, which is a sort of five-year degree, and, and towards the end of that, you have to, it really turns into sort of sort of research and self-driven research. And at the time at Harper Adams, we had a head of department called Professor Simon Blackmore, who is sort of one of the what you know, one of the key figures in agricultural robotic thinking. So during the 2000s, he he released, you know, several published several papers and used to speak a lot at conferences about the ideas of agricultural robotics. And obviously as a student of his um, and someone who had to do quite a lot of my own thinking, my own research, it, it was an interesting um sort of area to get into in terms of, of, of at the time so this is back in sort of 2012 2013 the reasons that we were talking about uh heavily talking about in terms of the benefits of agricultural robotics were all about um if a machine didn't need an operator then there was no reason for that machine to be quite so big as it is at the moment because basically we have to have really big machines so each person can achieve lots of work but if the machine wasn't tied to a person then we could actually move to a a situation where we had lots of small machines and and the ideas sort of academically that were driving that was was to try and be more precise with our machinery so so have targeted uh robots that would go out and do really targeted applications of chemicals and pesticides and you know fertilizer um and also just because they were smaller could we could we get to a situation where we were alleviating compaction so that was the really ideas that we talked really heavily about sort of yeah pre-hands-free hectare they were they were the really driving driving forces as to why automation might be beneficial in farming now you know 
10 years later or so that 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 conversation is kind of very similar now but it it now comes wrapped in the the sort of guise of net zero and carbon capture and if you could regenerate soils and use less inputs then you could catch carbon and you could take away your scope two and three emissions from your farm so it's we're talking about the same things nowadays but actually the sort of um the 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 framing of that conversation sort of developed a little bit yeah okay so it's um it's very much kind of like the the benefits the potential benefits of having smaller farm vehicles um and then precision as well um okay cool and then um so how did how did the hands-free hectare actually come about yeah so it was it was it was very organic as it were to out of out of the situation um that i've just described so i i ended up after graduating from harper i ended up being a researcher and i was developing um various uh projects um i was sort of uh, a, a jobbing um agricultural engineer doing design on on various research projects at harper so one of them was was a project with trans stacker that sort of the big bale trans stacker so a bale logistics machine so a very mechanical thing and then another project just as an example was sort of um hyper weeding where we were looking at using lasers to to kill weeds so so two quite different projects that i was involved in as, a, as an agricultural engineer um but basically the the ideas and the concepts around robotic farming and getting people away from the machine and shrinking the machines never went away but there was very little evidence of it developing in the sense there was nothing to point to so a lot of the ideas were discussion points and, and very academic discussions but nothing to point at and so and so hands-free hectare was really just an idea that came from myself and a colleague called jonathan gill uh who was who was working on drones and flying machines where we said that you know seeing is believing you know again five years before that point so we're talking 2015 you know in 2010 drones were like uh, an absolute sci-fi idea five years later drones were completely ubiquitous and everyone knew what they were and had seen them and the, the only difference was is they existed in 2010 but people had started to see them and they became you know very open and obvious so the idea was just basically can we do a, a robotics project that that doesn't that, that basically puts these ideas front and center and, and makes people you know wake up to the potential of robotics which at the time was a very academic conversation um, so that, that was what hands free was all around. It was about a, a project that would, you know, one, we, we tried to be, you know, the, the idea was it was a world's first to grow a, a, the world's first arable crop in 2017 is when we actually ended up doing that. Um, but, but it wasn't just to do it, it was to tell the world about it and be really open and really out there. So do as many media interviews as we could do as much social media as we could. Uh, and that was, that was really the idea of hands free was to change the perception that, that robotics wasn't going to be something in 30 years time or the next generation actually robotics was going to come in the next decade um and that that was what it was all about can you tell us a little bit a bit about that first crop and i guess how you prepared for it like how you adapted the vehicles and that kind of thing yeah yeah so we used drone technology so this sometimes confuses people we weren't like flying drones and controlling tractors from drones but basically the, the the brains within the drone we we took the sort of the the hardware the computer from the drone and we put it into the tractor um that was the sort of electronic bit but then obviously we took control of the tractor and we had a very mechanical manual tractor so we had um we had to put things like a, a motor on the steering wheel to turn the steering wheel and we had 
uh, what we call linear actuators to pull and push the the levers that the human operator would normally pull and push. So, so the first machine was was very sort of basic and Heath Robinson in a way, the way we went around making an autonomous vehicle. But that was all part of the aim to show that this stuff didn't have to be science fiction. And we didn't have to reinvent the wheel because a lot of the stuff around robotics at the time, a lot of the concepts were very concept. They they looked like I always liken them to sort of vacuum cleaners driving around fields with the sort of imagery. So so we took a very classical looking small tractor and we did some very rudimentary engineering to make it drive itself. You know, so as I say, we were using this 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 established drone technology, but putting it into a new place. Um, you know, we started with a single flat field. Uh, and, and we did all the tasks. So we we um, we drilled the crop and rolled the crop and applied fertilizer and sprayed all all through the tractor. And if you look back at some of the the imagery of that year one, that 2017 spring spring barley we grew, you know it wasn't great. The tractor didn't drive particularly straight. It wiggled around all over the place. But it gave us a platform to have this discussion. And and you know I got to do crazy things off the back of it. You know I I managed to you know, go, go to various places around the world to talk about it because of it. And I managed to, you know, get on the stage at Oxford when I was only like sort of, you know, 28 in 2018 or I was 27, I think. So I was pretty young to have a, a main speaker slot, slot at Oxford. So it did exactly what we intended it to do in the sense that we wanted people to wake up to this idea. So even though the crop wasn't perfect, we didn't get the best yield and, and they say the tractor didn't drive massively, like, you know, completely straight what it did do is gave us that real that opportunity to talk about it and, and open people's eyes to, to to autonomous farming. What I'm kind of burning to ask a little bit is how you get around things like um like sort of obstacles in the field and that kind of thing. Like how like is there a bit of a safety aspect with stuff like that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, most so, farmers' fields aren't like just perfect fields, are they? Yeah, yeah. Well, so go go back to 2000. And for, so from a personal point of view, go back to 2016 when I'm trying to make this project happen, uh, you know, obviously working with my colleagues and, and, and you know, safety was was our number one sort of headache. You know, every, you know, I've got a university that is worried about safety, ultimately going, this is the world's first thing. You know, this is a tractor that's driving itself, you know, alarm bells are going off. So we did an awful lot of risk assessments and we did some, you know, again, we did lots of stuff like we, we put, we put a fence around the field and we had um, laser um, safety systems on the front of the tractor. So they're, they're basically a laser that scans in front of the tractor to see any obstacles. Uh, but the key was if we don't put anyone in the field, if we keep the field segregated, we, we can operate. So that was how we dealt with it back then. But you're right, we had a square, flat, very unrealistic field. And that was the biggest criticism of hands-free was, or hands-free hectare, I should say, was that was that my field doesn't look like that. Uh, and I've got footpaths and telegraph poles and whatever. So that was that was what we tried to address when we um, then moved on to hands-free. We did do hands-free hectare for two, two cropping years, and, and then we did some other side projects. Uh, but then we moved on to hands-free farm. And the idea with hands-free farm is we went to... 35 hectares of land and five fields um and those fields were all different shapes sizes as we found them we had telegraph poles and manhole covers and and footpaths all the things you'd have on farm and and how we deal with that is that essentially our uh anything what, what that we deem as a static obstacle which is not particularly difficult to to describe you know anything that's there all the time we just basically geolocate that thing and we we generate route plans because our machines are following predetermined routes they're not making up, a, they're not deciding where they go for themselves. 
we have algorithms that before we get in the field generate the route plans so if we've got located obstacles we just route around them so the machine drives around them and and i've got a really nice picture from a drone of one of our fields that's got telegraph poles and you can see the where we've rolled around these telegraph poles and there's like perfect diamond shapes around the, the telegraph poles that are you know I've I've driven I've you know drive, driven a lot of tractors in my life. In fact, later today I'm off combining. So, um, but you know when I drive around a telegraph pole, it certainly doesn't look as neat as when my robot drives around a telegraph pole. I can tell you that it's like an absolute perfect miss. So, um, the uh, that's how we deal with static things. Then when it comes to dynamic things, so the public, uh, you know, any livestock or you know wildlife that might enter the field. Then we have these forward-facing safety systems. And, and I have to be honest, at the moment, those are not as um, sophisticated as we'd like them to be. They tend to be a single line laser. So, you know, it's a laser that's set up at about a meter high. So, you know, anything shorter than a meter doesn't get seen by that. So on some of our machines, we also have bumpers and buffers as well. But that is an an area that is maturing because we have things like rope, um, driverless cars are using all sorts of clever radar technologies and things like that. So we're sort of ever in hope that that forward facing safety will improve. But what we've also found just by operating in an environment where we have walkers and the public is, you know, we're very pessimistic as humans and you sort of assume that everyone's going to throw themselves under a tractor that's driving itself. Actually, people aren't that stupid is what I've learned over the last three years of driving tracks around fields. That don't you know people are interested. They want to get a photo, but they're not actually so stupid that they're going to jump under the thing as long as you communicate with them. So, you know, our fields, we all had, we had signage that said, you know, in these fields, we have robots operating. We engage with our, you know, the local council, uh, parish council and dog walkers and whatever. So if you have a conversation with people and you, and you risk assess your situation, actually, that stuff isn't as scary as you first think. So, and and in fact, sorry, I'll, I'll ramble on and just make this answer last forever, but we've now just managed to get a, uh, a, a British standard has just come out, a code of practice for the use of autonomous vehicles, which is all about giving guidance to farmers who want to use autonomous systems in field. So there is now some guidance you can follow, which is basically what we were doing all along in hands-free, which is risk assessing our situation, communicating, putting in um, where possible, putting, you know, mitigation in place, but ultimately, you know, it isn't impossible to, to operate an autonomous machine is, is what we found. Great. Thanks, Kit. That all sounds really interesting. Um, I just had a few questions, if that's all right. Yeah, you go for In terms of the scalability and the eco- economics of this, how many other people are using autonomous agricultural vehicles and what other cost benefit like what cost benefit analysis has been done and what um sort of com- is there commercial companies producing these machines yeah yeah absolutely so yeah a few things there but um i think if we it, I'll, I'll stick with my work first or the work i'm involved with directly um we've done economic analysis of our system i think what our system shows is that robotics doesn't have to be vastly expensive um now there's a scenario where the early early people into the market might charge lots of money for their thing, just like, you know, when the iPhone first came out, it was three times more money than a normal phone at the time, you know. So there's a, there's a sort of first mover tax maybe, but I think in time, autonomous farm machines are not, they don't have to be intrinsically more expensive. 
that isn't the case. You know, the technology isn't that expensive to make them drive themselves. It's mostly already on a tractor anyway. It's it's GPS. It's you know some electrical architecture that already sits on 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 modern farm machinery. So so that that upfront cost isn't necessarily higher. And in fact, if we move to really small machines, it can potentially be lower. And what our economic analysis of our project work has shown is is that we can actually reduce the cost of production largely due to a reduction in um in uh capital expenditure on on big farms but on small farms it's about liberating that labor force so it means that on a small family farm of maybe 100 hectares you know you're not tied to the tractor seat and you can be doing other more like higher value tasks around the farm you can be doing your office work and your marketing and your buying and selling and the things that actually make you money not driving in straight lines so on a small farm, we can improve profit margins by liberating staff. And on a big farm, we can improve profit margins by actually moving to a, a reduced capital expenditure of these smaller machines that operate in what we, you know, we describe as swarms or fleets, you know, multiple small machines rather than huge machines that cost loads and loads of money. So that's what our analysis has showed. Um, I should say the machines that we use are sort of 40 horsepower um, that you know, it's the size and shape of a T20, but it's more powerful than a T20 thanks to a turbocharger. Just to get slightly geeky and engineering on you, um, that uh, we're not convinced. You know, I'm not convinced that that's the perfect size for UK farming. Let's let's be very clear. It could be bigger than that. It could be smaller than that. We just punted somewhere. You know, what might what I truly believe is that when I see a 600 horsepower tractor in a field in the UK. I fundamentally think that isn't an error and we shouldn't have that sort of size and shape machines in UK farming. So, so I, you know, that's, you know, I'm going to be as as non-committal as possible here, but my view is we shouldn't have massive machines, you know, 400 horsepower plus shouldn't really be in UK farming where the actual perfect size is, you know, we're not exactly sure yet, but I do believe our average farm machinery size should reduce as we, as we move to, to automation. Um, so that, that's the work we've done. In terms of your other stuff about, you know, are there are there commercial companies? Yeah, I think last count there's about thirty commercial autonomous offerings now available uh, internationally. So they're not all of them in this market, but internationally there are about thirty companies selling fully autonomous farm robots, for want of a better word. And some of those are already finding their way onto UK farms and really paying their way. So. Um, I won't mention any names today, but there are there are some some small sort of high value crop machinery that is that is on farm and certainly an economic advantage for the farms that have adopted it. I guess being a lot smaller, they can obviously, as you say, get around trees and get into headland a lot better and get around smaller spaces a lot better than some of these big machines we've got these days. But as you said, in terms of the lower horsepower, how long would you expect like how long do they run for before they need to be, and I'm guessing they run off batteries and they can be obviously solar powered or uh, renewable energy is obviously a lot more favoured to that size of machine, but how long would they effectively run for before they need to be recharged? Yeah, great. So again, the, to, to, to answer the first bit, yeah, what we're hoping is that if we, again, uh, a sort of side advantage to moving to smaller machines, the, the, the primary advantage was that more precision, that kind of the soil, but a side advantage of that is, yeah, it makes it makes small irregular shaped fields and fields with field trees and essentially how we now package biodiversity, you know, 
it makes that more possible. So, you know, gone are the days where we should, you know, take out hedges and, and all those things. And in fact, if we move to automation, can we reestablish hedges or can we put biodiversity back into our fields? So one of the things we're working on at the moment at Harper is strip cropping. So can we grow, which we're, at the moment we're growing three crops next to each other using our two meter drill and our two meter combine. We can, we've, we've managed to plant, you know, three different crops next to each other. And in a couple of weeks time, we'll be harvesting each of those crops individually so we're, we're trying to bring biodiversity back into the farm and, and that was something i certainly wasn't talking about in 2013 that is definitely an, 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 an evolution of this whole area of work that i've been involved in our machines are diesel powered we, we have conventional tractors um they'll run for sort of seven or eight hours before we need to put some more diesel in them but it's very conventional um in terms of what's coming to the market you're absolutely right there's a there's a really big offering in in the electric space because small light machinery that are very targeted with their inputs are ultimately more energy efficient and therefore battery electrification becomes an opportunity a possibility you know i you know i don't think we're going to see i don't you know i'm not i don't think i'm i'm blowing uh, bursting any bubbles here i don't think we're ever going to see a, a, a or not with with current battery technology, we are not going to see a battery powered two hundred horsepower tractor. It's just not going to happen unless battery technology changes drastically. But if we're talking about a small autonomous hoeing system or a small autonomous spot spraying system that's very low energy use, then actually, yes, yeah, suddenly we can have a battery that runs that and we don't have to use diesel anymore. And yet we can also strap solar panels on the top. So some of the stuff that's out there at the moment that's solar powered are running for sort of 20 hour days on solar power. So they'll run beyond sunset because they will have harvested enough energy over the day that they charge up their batteries. They go on for another few hours into, into the night and then they basically go into a sleep mode until the sun comes up and they've harvested enough energy to start again. So, but, but that, in certain circumstances is as much as sort of 20 plus hours a day of operation just from the sun in these sort of hoeing hoeing robots so it's you know it's really i find that amazing i think that's such an incredible step forward no really amazing and i guess also i'm thinking about obviously down here we've got really heavy clay soils i'm guessing being a lot lighter they can obviously get out and do a lot more work than these oh. big tracks would be able to on the absolutely ground. yeah there you get too dry and yeah, you're going back to some of the sort of thought processes of my, say my old boss, Simon Blackmore, who used to talk about there's no such thing as the wrong, um, you know, the wrong weather. There's just, the you know, the, there's no such thing as a soil that's too wet. There's just a tractor that's too heavy. Um, you know, so if uh, if you've got these smaller lighter machines, yeah, you can you can start earlier. You can get on the land sooner with a small machine and you can generally be out there later with a small machine, you know, when the rain comes. So, yeah, what we've... There's this sort of paradigm where big machines allow you to do huge amounts of work in a small period, but they also reduce the period that you can do that work in because the big heavy machine can't go in a field if it's a bit damp. So yeah, there's a there's an interesting paradigm where if we flip everything to be small and light and aluminium and solar powered, then actually can it just run out there all the time? You know, it it is possible to run on a soil at field capacity if you're light enough and you're footprint's big enough you know um so yeah it, it it changes it changes the way you have to think of farming differently certainly in the in the in the 
world of these electric powered systems, you have to think farming differently. You're not going to go in the field and, you know, do a hundred acres in a day, a hundred hectares in a day. You, you have to change your mindset. And this is now a machine that's going to go in the field. It's going to live in the field and it's going to trundle up and down and it's going to be slow, steady, get the job done. And, and you have to just change your mindset a little bit with some of these systems. But if you do that, there are benefits to be had. Kind of want to ask, like sort of putting the self in like farmer's shoes, uh, perhaps considering maybe autonomous vehicles might be good for farm business. Um, what would kind of be the next steps to kind of explore how to get started? Because you're not going to change your whole system at once, are you? Like where would they get advice and what, what would be worth considering sort of first? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good question. Actually, we're 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 quite early in in this world. There are there are obviously some academics like me that if you can pin down, might have a chat with you. Um, certainly, if I'm at a show or something like that, very happy to chat. Um, but there are now a number of companies that are starting to offer autonomous systems and. From my um, sort of dealings with most of those, most of them are pretty genuine. They're not trying to sell you something that isn't going to fit your system. So actually, the, the sort of the companies that are in the marketplace are, you know, are, are worth a chat. See what they say. See what they point out. I think you have to identify an opportunity in your business. Um, so you're not going to do what I did. You're not going to suddenly yeah, go and farm your whole farm in arable crops using autonomous machines. That, that's not happening tomorrow. Let's be very clear you know we did that as a research project um but if you can identify an opportunity so yeah you want to reduce your chemical use and you want to move to 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 a a hoeing technology well then there are machines out there that you could adopt and you could put that hoe into your farm system reduce your chemical bill reduce the hours on your sprayer and, you know, so I think you just got you need to find a, a, a place to start. And I think it will um, it will sort of escalate from there. I mean, we haven't mentioned the, the the human resource element at all. And it's something that I always used to, to be honest, shy away from. I didn't want to go down the route of talking about, you know, I, you know, replacing humans. But I've, I've never really seen automation as replacing humans. I've always seen it as a way to optimize are humans so you know we have a limited resource on farm in terms of operators and farm workers um and automation is a way of optimate optimizing their time you know as i said earlier driving in straight lines on a tractor is is not really earning you as much money as making the correct decision on when to buy when to sell what inputs to put into the farm so um they were always the reasons that i that i went to from a adoption place if people ask me about the labor thing but actually if we sort of address that head on you know there are situations where you know in organic farming where you might have used um you might have used labor to go out and manually hoe a crop well now that you can just get your robot to to hoe your crop and that replaces that labor that probably is starting to dry up and become harder to get and cost you more money etc um i'm not really involved in the world of horticulture but obviously there is a huge drive to, to 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 pin down the strawberry picking robot and the raspberry picking robot and all those things are are in the works and are, and are certainly developing um and will come in time but uh yeah my work's mostly always been sort of field crops um 
and there's definitely an opportunity in some of the sort of higher demanding manual tasks that robots can actually start to, to do that work already. But going back to that, what, what sort of skills are required by the operator of these machines? Because obviously they sound like they're highly technical. Um, is there any specific skills? And obviously if something goes wrong, I'm guessing it would be not that easy to fix. Uh, yeah, so I think I, I, I always say that if if the job of an as an engineer, if, if the engineers have done their job correctly, these things shouldn't be difficult to use. Um, and I think the skill set required as an operator of of any of the commercial, you know, I've, I've looked at all of the commercial offerings available here in the UK. And the skill set required is really to be able to drive a, an app on a smartphone. You know, it's it's a case of you you set up a task in the field all through a tablet or, or, or a phone app. Um, you send that to the machine and the machine is sending you updates and you can dial in and, and, and check the sort of telemetry of your machine from a distance at any time. And it really should be as easy as, as, as driving uh, as driving an app. And I think the, the, the machines that are, that are successfully selling are, are as good as that. I think what you need to be wary of as an adopter of, of this sort of technology is you just need to be aware of wary of you're the first adopter in the country. You know, if, if you've got, uh, I don't, you know, there's something very admirable with being a first adopter, but if there's a brand new machine that's just come in from Europe or just been developed here at home in the UK and you're the first farmer to put it on their farm, you know, don't be surprised if it's not going to work perfectly and don't be surprised if it doesn't, you know, doesn't, you know, create less work day one, you know, um, but the, the, the machines that are established and there are machines that they've sold, you know, hundreds of now, there are, you know, the machines that have sold in their hundreds are very reliable and very easy to use, you know, essentially set up and use through the phone app. In terms of if things go wrong, again, what I'd like to think is those machines are all going to be covered by warranty and dealers that are going to cover them just like any other piece of farm machinery. And to be blunt, there's not many farmers this day and age that lay a finger on a tractor that's that's less than three years old. You know, that is a job done by a technician in a van who comes and does that work. And, you know, we've already moved to that system. We've already moved to that that area. Um, and I think that's that's where automation will be. But again, looking at these machines, other than the, the very nitty-gritty electronics on board, the mechanical aspects are, are no more complicated than the mechanical aspects of any other farm machinery that, that most farmers are comfortable with tweaking and fettling if they need to. Uh, so just looking to the future and the kind of push towards net zero in agriculture, how do you see autonomous vehicles fitting in with that? Yeah, so I see autonomous vehicles really as an enabling technology. Um, they are not a, they're not a, an end in their own point, but they're a means to an end. So as, as we've already said earlier on, you know, you're not going to see a battery powered 200 horsepower tractor, but you might see a battery powered robot. So, so in that instance, you know, automation will enable a move to electrification on farm. You know, again, as we mentioned before, we want to put more biodiversity in our fields and we maybe want to put hedgerows back in and field trees back in and automation will enable us to do that because we will be able to adapt to that sort of system. So, so for me, you know, it, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a, it, it enables 
a lot of these changes we need to make. It will enable a change of fuel use. It will enable a, an improvement in biodiversity. It will enable us to, you know, improve our soils and capture more carbon. It will also enable us to, to monitor that because let's be honest, you know, in a world where potentially we're going to be funded or, or paid commercially for, for those biodiversity and carbon benefits on our farms, someone's going to start asking where's the data to back it up and, and robotics and automation are going to be part of that story going out and, and checking up on how things have changed on our farms as well. So yeah, I think, I think they're intrinsic. I think, I think a net zero future farm intrinsically requires automi- automation and digitalization really um, to enable all the things to happen. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I think we've, in some ways, we've kind of barely grazed the surface of some of that, but there's um, certainly a lot to think about. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no worries. I hope it's been interesting. That was really interesting and really reassuring to hear that the use of autonomous vehicles will not only help your soils in a regenerative way, but it's also achievable and affordable for all farmers across all sectors, regardless of what size or sector you might be in, that robotics doesn't have to be expensive and that you can start on a really small scale and scale up. Also, that they reduces the cost of production overall. And it also liberates family farms, I thought was a really key point as well, that you can be obviously operating this machinery, but also doing something else maybe at the same time, I thought was really interesting. I totally agree. And also for me, I thought it was really interesting how autonomous vehicles can allow a shift back towards smaller vehicles in agriculture and how that can potentially help with the soil and can allow farmers to farm in a regenerative way whether you love or loathe that term yeah totally and reducing the use of chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers as we know is really important which obviously this lends itself to perfectly and also using smaller machines not only reduces compaction but being able to get under trees and round trees and into headlands and things and into smaller fields is obviously a benefit to a lot of farmers whereas obviously these big machines they use nowadays can only access the big square field so I think going forward it's going to be a really useful technology. Thank you for joining us for the Farm of the Future podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast as we'd love to hear your thoughts and it will help others to discover it too. We'll be back next month to explore another exciting topic which impacts the future of farming. Catch you then.